BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. My son had a gift with technology. With reliable internet at home through the Internet Essentials Program, the world opened up. He's part of this next generation of young people who feel they can thrive. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to help open doors for the next generation with the connectivity and skills they need to build a future of unlimited possibilities. It's Monday, October 1st, 2018, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Andre Viscontis. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at inquiring.show, on Twitter at inquiringshow, and on Facebook. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. When I think about who are the tech superpowers and where the leading edge innovations are coming from in terms of technology and especially artificial intelligence, I can't help but turn my gaze towards Silicon Valley. Maybe it's because I live not too far away, but also because that's where most of the media focuses their attention. And yet in the last couple of years, there's been an amazing emergence of technology coming from China. And it's a place where the market is so huge that even if we've never heard of a company, that particular company can be even larger than some of the companies that we think of as the biggest in the world. To help us understand the emergence of these new technologies, what they mean for everyone else in the Western world, and what are the kinds of ways in which artificial intelligence is going to change our life, I talked to Dr. Kai-Fu Lee. Dr. Kai-Fu Lee is the chairman and CEO of Cinnovation Ventures, which is a leading venture capital firm focused on developing the next generation of Chinese high-tech companies. But before he founded Cinnovation, about almost 10 years ago, he was the president of Google China. And before that, he was an executive at Microsoft and SGI and Apple. He also holds a PhD from Carnegie Mellon University, and he's been a pioneer in the field of artificial intelligence for many decades. And in fact, he was one of the first people to program an artificial intelligence that beat humans at a game that was thought to be only human. He's also the author of a new book called AI Superpowers, China, Silicon Valley, and the New World Order. Let's take a short break, and we'll be back with my interview with Kai-Fu Lee. Welcome to Inquiring Minds, Kai-Fu Lee. Thank you for inviting me. I'd like to start by having you tell us a little bit about a program that you wrote in the 1980s. It was in order to best a human player at a game that's pretty complicated. It was, in, in a lot of ways, the first of its kind. So tell us about the program that you wrote that beat a human for the first time in the game Otello. Right. Uh, it was just a fascination with machine learning. Uh, I wanted to know if there was some way I could uh, teach a computer to learn by itself, uh, by playing itself, and then uh, learning 
what it, what does it take to win and what is it that makes one lose and extract those knowledge and play humans and it beat the world champion in 1988 I think so I'm still really curious about what it must have been like in the 1980s when you know machine learning and computer programming was you know compared to today uh, much more primitive so what was it about your program that was able to best a human, uh, whereas other kinds of programs, you know, had thus far failed? Uh, yeah, well, we did have computers back then, so it wasn't uh, punch cards or pushing buttons or anything. I did have a computer. It was a Sun 4 and um, workstation, and uh, it was programmed in the uh, C language, which people still use. Um, we, I think what sets this program apart is before uh, people just uh, brute force searched if I play A, they play B, I play C. Of all the permutations, uh, if they play the best they could, would I beat them? But what I added was, uh, for each consideration of your move, uh, look at all historical patterns and try to find a mathematical curve that gives you the highest likelihood of winning each move so that when you play the game, you'd be watching your probability hopefully increase and then when the, the opponent, opponent makes a mistake, you will increase greatly. So that machine element, which is what the current uh, AI movement is about, is what set the program apart. Uh, at the time, uh, there wasn't a program that had beat the world checkers champion. Mine beat the Othello. And then about uh, 10 years later, uh, Deep Blue beat the chess player. Yeah, and so now we get to a point where people think, okay, well, maybe computers can best humans on certain tasks, but there are certain other kinds of very human-like abilities that computers will never be able to match, let alone best us at. And, and that's where we come to the Go game. My understanding of Go is that you can't just use brute force. There are just too many permutations. And so people think about the top human players as using some kind of intuition, uh, some kind of, you know, mental process that seems uniquely human. And that's why people thought, well, sure, you can beat someone at chess where, you know, you can think of all the different options that a person might have, um, but you can't beat a person who's really great at Go because in some ways how they solve the problems is almost mystical. T so tell us what's different about the Go game. At the time, even when uh, Deep Blue uh, beat Kasparov, most of us thought it would be a very long time before AI could be the human in Go because Go ha is has a much higher complexity than chess or even much, much higher than Othello. Uh, the reason is that um, Othello and chess are played on the board of 8 by 8. So the choices are on the order of, um, you know, uh, 64 or maybe probably a little bit more because each piece has a, a few more moves. But in Go, each choice is on the order of 400. So you might say that's 400 to 60, that's a factor of six, but it really isn't because when you start evaluating possibilities beyond the current move, let's say you evaluate 40 moves ahead, you're talking about 600 to the 40th versus 60 to the 40th then the gap is astronomical. And it would almost seem, uh, if you took 
uh, any of our old algorithms extended to Go, there was no hope within human lifetime of reaching um, a similar quality of play. But what actually the AlphaGo team did were several very smart things. Uh, they combined three sets of algorithms, all of which were new and uh, in some sense revolutionary. And each of these algorithms did something very special. Uh, deep learning is the core algorithm that uh, really taught the system uh, what's good and what's bad, what's winning and what's losing. That sense was similar to what I did with um, Othello, but this went much, much deeper. It's able to, to go selectively uh, much, much deeper and extract much stronger knowledge, even knowledge that humans don't have. So during a game, it would make some play that humans don't understand, but only later to find out uh, the game was already hopeless. Uh, they had a second element, which is reinforcement learning, and that is essentially uh, the game teaching itself uh, without having to observe other people. Um, and it, it makes itself better by playing itself. Again, something I, I have tried before, but they did it in a much more elegant way. And then thirdly, they had a Monte Carlo tree search, which um, allows them to um, make clever selections and go very deeply uh, without searching the entire uh, permutation of possibilities. So these three technologies, I think in particular deep learning, uh, was such a huge, through, so huge breakthrough that essentially uh, they went um, from about a six-dan uh, capability. Dan is what's measured human performance. Nine-dan is the highest humans are believed to ever be able to go. Uh, within one year, they went from about six-dan to nine-dan. And then um, the final AlphaGo that um, beat Kajie is believed to be something like 20-dan and above. It's, it's uh, astronomically better than humans. Uh, it's not even uh, a, a human uh, gap that 20 to 9, if that were possible, wouldn't even waste time playing with someone at, at uh, 9 dan, which is world champion human. So that's how large the gap has become. So let's just tell our listeners who Kaijie is and why this is so significant. Uh, Kaijie is a 19-year-old Chinese prodigy. Many believe him to be the best Go player ever. He is a natural. He plays the human style, so a lot of it is by intuition. A lot, um, and and humans have uh, put human strategy and philosophy superimposed it on Go. So there are play times when he is uh, aggressive, uh, fighting, trying to win. There are times he's defensive, protecting. So the humans have um, humanized the game to believe that you'll need these emotions and characteristics and uh, be able to uh, step back and think and be deliberate about the moves. So he is really the best at it. And he is uh, very proud, sometimes arrogant, uh, claiming that no machines could beat him, claiming that no humans could beat him. But when he actually played AlphaGo, uh, it was a three to zero, three resounding losses where he didn't even get started and basically got squashed. 
So at the end of the match, he came to his tears and、um, really、uh, accepted defeat. And and that act of coming to his tears was very touching to a lot of people. So actually, there is a lot of、um, sympathy. He became kind of a hero,、uh, even though even though he lost because he wanted to win so badly.、Uh, it was so emotional for him. This was his life, and yet a cold machine、uh, defeated him. And I suspect a lot of us, other humans, are going to have a similar moment sometime in the future when, you know, we realize that the things that we hold most dear about our intelligence、uh, will be accomplished by a machine. So I do want to talk about, you know, how artificial intelligence is going to shape the workforce. So this moment, in addition to the previous moment where AlphaGo beat another really great Go player, Li Cidol, you call this China's Sputnik moment. So a lot of people in the rest of the world had no idea that this was even happening, and yet in China it was a major event. You know, you had, you know, hundreds of millions of people tuning in and and watching this happen. So tell us a little bit about why you call this China's Sputnik moment and and why that's significant.、Uh, certainly,、uh, this was the event that woke China up. That artificial intelligence is huge. So, in the same sense that the、uh, Soviet Union Sputnik woke up America, that、uh, this important technology race、uh, U.S. was actually behind. So,、um, in China, people became aware there's this new technology、um, that's、uh, developed and owned by the、um, Europeans and Americans.、Uh, Chinese seem to have no grasp on the technology, and it is so powerful. And moreover, it beats the Chinese in a game that the Chinese invented. This is not、uh, Othello or checkers. This is uh, uh, the game of Go. So people felt this was something that we have to go learn, and this included people in the government, people in the venture capital community, people in, who are engineers, people who are entrepreneurs, larger companies who want to know how to use this. So it became. Uh, very quickly, a national、uh, moment. So, not only did China, you know, sort of take notice of of how artificial intelligence has proceeded in the rest of the world, but there also seems to have been a qualitative shift in the last decade or so in terms of how the Chinese are approaching technology、uh, and innovation. A lot of us Westerners still, incorrectly, as you point out, think of the Chinese technological. Industry as being primarily made up of copycats of people who are, you know, taking an idea that has come from somewhere else and essentially just repeating it in, in their own way and putting on a new label.、Um, but now you're suggesting that in fact that kind of labeling is no longer appropriate. So tell us a little bit about that shift. Well, if a Sputnik moment could lead to today, where China is roughly at parity in AI with the United States. In a short period of just over two years, there must be something more at play.、Um, so, what's important to realize is the Sputnik moment happened、uh, at a time of strength, almost at a time of a perfect storm for China. So, at the point where Um, AlphaGo beat Li Cidol. China already had a crop of phenomenal entrepreneurs, had a huge amount of data, perfect for using AI, 
had a large amount of money ready to pour into AI and had a government who was ready to shift support from other technologies into AI. And when all four happened, China made a giant leap in the last two years. But what you were asking about the copycat phenomenon, uh, that is certainly, that certainly was true. About 10 years ago, almost all Chinese uh, top software apps, internet websites, search engines, um, e-commerce sites were largely copycat from Silicon Valley innovations. Um, but in, in the past 10 years, uh, China has also gone a long way from, from going from the copycat to the innovator. And that also was an, a, a miraculous um, um, change in itself. Um, and the reason for that was because uh, several reasons. One is China has this crop of incredibly hardworking entrepreneurs who work 996 or 997. That is 9 a.m. to 9 p.m., six or seven days a week. They work incredibly hard. They're very driven to success. You have to imagine the historical background that, that many of these people have been poor for 20 or 30 generations and the expectations were incredible from their parents and from themselves that they must succeed. And the metrics of success was laid out by uh, Deng Xiaoping, who said, um, let some people get rich first. This was a huge step from what was socialism. And that, that message um, made it a race to the top. So these entrepreneurs are incredibly driven, hardworking, hungry, and desiring to be those few who become rich. And also, the American models were not so hard to learn. So once the copycat um, happened, uh, it became a basis on a very large market where the ideas were tried, iterated, improved through the hardworking and execution um, to such a point that people started to say, hey, I can tweak this parameter. I can change that feature. And before you know it, the Chinese software no longer looked like the original American uh, product on which they copied. It became a completely different product. And then the Chinese um, entrepreneurs started to have their new ideas um, to combine many ideas from other software um, and then Chinese entrepreneurs had brand new ideas that they pushed forward. So this all happened in a short 10-year span, going from copycat to innovator. So today, if you look at the Chinese market, the apps that dominate uh, include things like a pervasive mobile phone payment, which Apple Pay is still struggling to figure out, and PayPal is still in early stages. Uh, the Chinese mobile pay has essentially wiped out cash and credit card. That's probably something hard for Americans to, uh, uh, to, to fathom and imagine how fast that could happen. Also, um, video streaming, uh, the American uh, effort Vine, uh, really never took off. Uh, but in China, the equivalent of video Vine uh, really took off in its own Chinese forms and it's actually highly monetizable and making billions of dollars for three companies. So incred incredible success. Um, and um, share, Americans started with the uh, shared um, uh, car, the economy, Uber. But now China has uh, sh shared trucks and shared uh, bicycles. 
and some of that is being copied back to the U.S. as shared skateboard. So, um, so one after another, these innovations are emerging out of a, a culture of copycat. That might seem almost incredible to Silicon Valley because uh, to someone in Silicon Valley, once a copycat, always a copycat. While I acknowledge that someone who copycats for his or her whole career will never get anywhere because you're always trying to catch up, but the Chinese entrepreneurs only use the initial copycat work to get up to speed, to understand, to get some product going. And after that, they're actually fully innovating. So they're taking the copycat work as their kindergarten, then they really go to school. Yeah, I think it's fascinating that, you know, a lot of us in the Western world, if we haven't heard about an app, we can't imagine just how big it might be, even if it's only limited to the Chinese market. Um, But because the Chinese market is so huge, you know, you can have an app that dominates the Chinese market that no one outside of the country has ever heard of, although, you know, that's very unlikely, um, but that, you know, maintains a larger uh, market share globally uh, than some of the biggest names that we are very familiar with. Yes, to be sure, the large market is very, very critical, without which China would not be where it is. By having a market that is four times, five times larger than the American market, and now even larger if you measure things like mobile payment and things like that, uh, China may be larger by 50, uh, that has uh, two important uh, implications. One is that a large market allows you to build a more powerful, more profitable internet company. So you attract more capital and you build a better product and you make more money and then you raise more money and then you make more money and you hire, use that money to hire more people and build big data centers and and uh, become more successful and more, more valuable. So this has led to almost one-to-one valuation. If you compare uh, Alibaba with Amazon, Tencent with Facebook, uh, almost across the board, the Chinese companies are about equal to the American one. Google, Baidu being the only exception, but there also are many examples like Chinese company called ByteDance is worth more than 10 times the equivalent of the American BuzzFeed. So if you average over all the numbers, we're about one-to-one. And, uh, and then on top of that, the second point is all these companies now have so much data and, you, and AI is more about data than deep science because the deep science have largely been published, even open sourced in the public. So if if these Chinese entrepreneurial companies, whether it's Tencent, Alibaba, uh, or others, if they took open source from, from what's out there um, and they hired some pretty good AI people, they can turn their data into uh, direct monetization and grow their business some more. So the cycle I earlier described um, is even uh, bigger and more powerful uh, if you consider the um, the power of data and using that data to build better AI, which leads to even better products. So, you know, as someone who lives in the U.S., uh, very close to Silicon Valley, I like to pride myself into thinking that I'm kind of on top of the latest trends uh, when it comes to technology and especially the internet. And yet, you know, a lot of the 
you know, apps that you talk about in your book, I, I've never heard of. So you've mentioned uh, mobile payment as being one of the ways in which uh, uh, sort of the, the Chinese technological um, economy has kind of have, has revolutionized people's lives in that way. Tell me a little bit more about that. And, and I think in your book, too, you talk about the O2O revolution. So, so what is that? Sure. First about the mobile payment. Uh, the two companies in China, Alibaba and Tencent, have each built incredibly convenient mobile payment that's essentially at your fingertip. Also, uh, not taking, almost taking no commission and allows you to pay anybody and pay in micropayments like 15 cents. So you can see this is not just something that makes uh, commerce, e-commerce and shopping more convenient. You can use it to pay someone uh, for money you owe, for going Dutch, allowance, uh, even to pay beggars. When you see beggars in the street, they're holding up a big UR code for you to scan and pay them. They don't expect you to have cash anymore. When robbers go rob convenience stores, they get no cash. So that profession's gone. So the entire Chinese population, most of the transactions, I think about uh, 17 trillion U.S. dollars worth, are going through this mobile payment infrastructure. And that has huge implications. First, it is a tremendous um, benefit to uh, companies who don't have to pay that extra few percent to the credit card companies. Secondly, it's incredibly convenient, efficient, and gives time back to people so they don't have to do uh, book tracking, take out the card, swipe the card, sign their name. It's just really one face recognition and off the money goes. Uh, thirdly, uh, it will really help the Chinese entrepreneurial uh, ecosystem because no longer do you have to have a company uh, uh, build up 10 million users and then figure out some business model to monetize, you can charge them money in day one. Uh, if you think you have a good broadcast, a good podcast, charge money right now. And those, if you have something of value, you might get a thousand users and they'll pay you uh, $50, $10 each, and you're immediately in a profit zone. And, and finally, this is uh, bringing a new consumer experience to the Chinese users uh, who have been in a savings mindset. And this kind of mobile payment will shift uh, most of the Chinese population from a saving uh, mentality to a spending mentality and from a savings economy to a spending economy. So that would be tremendous for uh, China's economy itself. So that's the, the, the phenomenal rise of mobile payment. Um, and of course, all the data through the mobile payment is uh, very valuable, arguably most valuable data that can be used by AI to analyze user patterns. If you have an e-commerce store or even a retail store, because everyone pays you through the same means, you can collect and know who has come to your store, what they bought, and that in itself is um, incredibly valuable that retail stores didn't used to have. The retail stores used to just know which merchandise flew off the shelf. They don't know who bought them. Now it can be tracked, just like on e-commerce. So, so tremendous for AI development as well. 
Yeah, I mean, it's kind of, you know, I, I agree with you that Apple Pay is not where it needs to be, but I certainly use it, you know, several times a day. Um, and now look, like ha- hearing you describe the mobile payment uh, in, in China makes me realize that in some ways we can look to what's happening in China to see the future of uh, mobile payment, you know, in the US. And and sort of so that by the same token, the O2O revolution, um, you know, has some of those same features where, you know, we, we think Uber has revolutionized or is revolutionized revolutionizing the way that we ride share in the in the in the cities and yet there are already you know companies that are far ahead uh, in China so let's tell me a little bit about that yeah I think we can think about o2o as a natural extension from e-commerce which is clearly an American innovation e-commerce is bringing products to your doorsteps through, through some mechanism of shipping but o2o is uh, really bringing services to you so this on the transportation side this means uh, allowing you when you go out you can um, take a car a bicycle a skateboard uh, and really get from point a to point b uh, much more conveniently uh, and it also means people can use these mechanisms for delivery so that you can order any food anytime you want uh, last time I came home late for dinner, uh, uh, and I just felt like eating a Chinese hot pot. And I went online, and there were 40 choices, uh, all delivering to me in 35 minutes. So this incredible convenience is changing the way uh, people uh, shop for not just products, but services. Uh, and this, this idea of O2O is going beyond uh, food it is going to start to merge with uh, offline presence. And we call that OMO, that is online merged with offline. Imagine a uh, retail shop now has access to all the people who've been to their store um, using, uh, uh, let's say, one of the uh, mobile pay mechanisms. And then they have cameras in the store or other sensors in the store, and they see what products the users looked at and bought or didn't buy or frowned or smiled, and all of that become hints as to what users like. And to the extent that store has also an online presence, they can build online plus offline uh, targeting for the user so that it's uh, much more convenient for the user uh, if you buy a printer, it knows to send you cartridges. If you um, buy medicine, it knows to ship them to you by by, by mail. Um, and, and, and they know what things you like and what new merchandise they have and what new sales they have. So the, 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 the people or the robots at the store can much more conveniently uh, help you find what you need and also help the store maximize its profits. So I think the entire Chinese uh, e-commerce was reshaped based on the U.S. innovation. Uh, Chinese reshaped its own service economy, O2O and OMO, based on its own ideas. And now I think it's going to spill over to change the way retail stores are built. 
you know, in America, the shopping malls are way overbuilt and many are ghost malls. The, the Chinese malls actually haven't been built because of the rise of e-commerce and services. But now I think uh, the Chinese malls are ready to be built because the malls can be equipped with AI uh, to observe and watch the shoppers and uh, optimize its product inventory and uh, predict sales volume and uh, have both robotic and human uh, uh, cashiers and assistants that really make the shoppers happier and also make the stores more money. Yeah, and so what what you're just describing here is a little bit like what AlphaGo and how it has sort of shaped reshaped uh, the Go game, which is not just bested humans, but made it better. Um, and and here you are describing uh, you know a, a, an optimized cashier essentially or an optimized you know retail employee um, who is better than the person the human that that they could potentially replace. You know, which gets us to what you describe as as the real kind of danger of AI, the real crisis. It's not that we are going to be, um, you know, dominated by Terminator-like robots, but rather that you know we're going to be in a situation in which our jobs, a lot of them, are going to be better served by AI than by humans. Uh, that's right. Um, a lot of the routine jobs can be done by robots and can be done by better, uh, better by robots. So, uh, for example, we talked about uh, cashiers in the stores, um, but that's only really just the beginning. Um, customer service, telesales, waiters, cooks, uh, these can all be done by uh, AI, automation, and robotics. Uh, these are relatively repetitive jobs. And also going beyond the retail segment, if we think about uh, truckers, um, people on the assembly floor, um, dishwashers, and if we go into more white-collar work, uh, people who uh, look through numbers, who do marketing campaigns, uh, assistants to lawyers and accountants, and um, even higher-end jobs, uh, such as radiologists, which is looking through uh, x-rays and uh, MRIs and CTs uh, to spot possible cancer tumor or other phenomenon. These are all, uh, quote-unquote, routine jobs. That is, jobs that don't require a lot of creativity or strategy. That is, doing the same job over and over again based on some kind of a pattern recognition and when it comes to that, a single domain pattern recognition based on large amounts of data, uh, predict what might have the best outcome or make a decision, make a prediction, make a classification. These are things AI will beat humans um, very easily. So you have daughters. <laughs> um, what, what are you encouraging them to study? What do you, what do you think their future is going to look like in terms of the workplace? What, what should we be focusing in on um, if a lot of the jobs that we currently rely on are going to be gone? Right. I think first it's important to let um, students and children follow their passion. Because imagine if you're competing with these robots and you're doing something you hate, then you really have no chance of excelling. So, so that's important. So, uh, so even before the uh, AI became this good, I've always tried to encourage my children to find uh, what they love and what they're good at, which are often the same thing. And, um, and, and that, I think, is a first step. 
in terms of what jobs are relatively safe. I think there are four types of jobs that are relatively safe for maybe thirty years, and、uh, I'll start from the least important to the most important.、Um, I think the least important is dexterity.、Uh, the the robots we talked about are not as nimble as us. They're not able to make、uh, you know crafts. They're not able to、uh, deal with variable environments. They're not able to deal with complexity, and we don't necessarily want them in places where human lives might be affected. So, high a high dexterity requirement、um, of blue collar jobs, I think, will be here for a while.、Uh, not not just things like、uh, air、uh, you know airplane mechanics. That's certainly high dexterity, but also、uh, cleaning an arbitrary room.、Uh, that's、uh, actually quite complex. Uh, washing dishes—that's not complex because it's a single domain, single environment. The second、uh, category is jobs that、uh, are cross-domain. These、um, these AI algorithms really operate over one domain at a time, so they collect a lot of data and try to play better go, try to wash dishes, try to make customers happy. Uh, try to maximize investment return. Try to、uh, minimize the、uh, loan default rate. These well-defined single-domain problems, AI beat us hands down. But when you have something that's cross-domain, like figuring out a mergers and acquisition deal,、uh, negotiate negotiating such a deal,、uh, running a company. I mean that isn't just about maximizing profit, but it has to do with PR, company image, employee satisfaction. It's multi-dimensional, so that gives a machine trouble.、Um, a third area, clearly, this is a very, very big one, is uh, creativity, um, and creativity includes not only、uh, coming up with entrepreneurs,、uh, coming up with new ideas,、uh, scientists, medical researchers inventing new drugs. But also artists who design、uh, works of art, sculpture, painting, photography, fashion,、uh, interior design.、Uh, by the way, these are、uh, the professions both of my daughters are in:、uh, arts and also uh, uh, creativity in terms of storytelling.、Uh, your podcast <laughs> and、um, a PR professional, marketing campaign. These are all safe because they require coming. Thinking about something out of nothing, and um, um, AI still needs humans to tell it optimize loan default rate. Then it goes and runs. So in some sense, it's more of a tool. So people working who are more like tools will get replaced. People who are more working more as users of tools, their jobs will continue. And then lastly, an area a lot, very few people talk about, but is actually the bulk. Of the new opportunity is jobs requiring uh, compassion, uh, compassion, empathy, social element, human to human interaction.、Um, people actually don't want machines to service them for many of the um, 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 areas:、uh, elderly companionship, uh, teachers, uh, even uh, doctors. These are areas、um, that need the human touch. So when you think doctors think about psychiatrists, would you want a machine to be your psychiatrist or a social worker? And even going beyond that, as AI becomes better and better at medical diagnosis, replacing the more and more of the analytical part of a doctor over the next twenty or thirty years, 
there still needs to be a social um, compassionate component, maybe a very compassionate um, nurse practitioner who may still be called a doctor who will uh, seek the AI's advice as to how to treat you, but deliver it in a very humane fashion to give you comfort uh, that you're cared after, call you, visit you at home, ensure you're better, uh, comfort you, increasing your confidence that you will um, overcome the whatever the, the problems, medical problems you have, and actually increasing your chances of uh, recovery. So, and also teachers, instead of uh, one-to-one um, um, lecture, teachers will engage in more one-to-one, not one-to-many um, assistance, uh, really caring about each individual pupil's needs and tailoring uh, what they might want to do, uh, much as I'm describing here, but on a one-on-one basis, understanding that encouraging someone to go into fashion design, encouraging someone to become a social worker and and helping them gain confidence that they will uh, succeed and find their place in this new society. So if we make teachers one-to-one, that's going to be a, a lot more, 20 times more teachers. So I think these kind of human interaction, um, something that we've moved away from in the age of mobile phones, uh, is going to be redoubled in its importance because if we think about what AI cannot do, uh, it's really dexterity, complexity, creativity, and compassion. And these are the four keywords we can use to help our children uh, find, uh, find their place. So I want to um, remind our listeners that uh, Kaifu Li's book, AI Superpowers, China, Silicon Valley, and the New World Order is now available at booksellers everywhere. And uh, I just want to end on uh, a question that sort of, you know, really kind of eats away at me a lot of the time. And and hearing you describe um, this kind of shift in China from socialism to, you know, at first a few people have to get rich mentality really underscores that, which is that, you know, I see the future of AI as just widening the gap between the rich and the poor, the have and the have nots. Um, what are ways in which we should be thinking policy-wise uh, to ensure that this gap does not continue to widen um, irretrievably, but rather, you know, gives a, a lot of people a lot of opportunities. Uh, yes, I think even if my predictions about job displacements are too aggressive, I'm I'm predicting on the order of uh, forty to fifty percent of the jobs would be technically feasible by AI in the fifteen year time frame. And even if those numbers were too aggressive, there's no question that the haves and have-nots, their gaps will continue to widen. In fact, they have widened over the last 10 years in America, and that's going to get only worse. So clearly some uh, metrics, some uh, clearly some measures have to be put in place. And I believe one such um, measure by the government is a way really of taxing the ultra-rich because there will be people who will gain, make so much money um, that will make uh, the Gates and Zuckerberg fortune look like nothing because AI will generate so much wealth uh, by optimizing, by squeezing more profit margin, 
by replacing people's jobs and so on. So that taxation, uh, one way or another, must happen for a redistribution of wealth to those who are in need of transition. Because if we're wiping out, whether it is, um, uh, as I predict, 45% of the jobs, or maybe, let's say I'm too aggressive, 25% of the jobs, that's still way too many. And uh, to help people get back on their feet and become retrained uh, are all things that require programs to be put into place. Currently, a lot of um, people, especially Silicon Valley titans, are proposing what's called universal basic income, which is basically give money to everybody. And I think that is not the right thing because someone losing a job on an assembly line Given the same uh, is given the same salary to do whatever he or she wants. There's no guarantee that a uh, they wouldn't fall prey to substance abuse, depression, uh, from the loss of job and the loss of meaning in the process. Uh, secondly, even if they went for retraining, it's not clear they will choose the right area to retrain. They might retrain to be a customer service rep. In three years, that job's gone too. So I think there needs to be a deliberate effort based on the types of uh, analysis uh, I put out in my book about the four types of jobs that won't disappear and to design uh, all the way from high school vocational training to education to, um, to job retraining to help find the right jobs that won't be taken away by AI. So that's the training that's going to be useful for people who want to retrain. But taking a step back, we also realize many of the people who might be displaced are perhaps at a near retirement age, or maybe they want to choose uh, to contribute to the society but not to get another job. Uh, Given AI will create a lot of wealth, I think that is a perfectly fine uh, thing. So for people who will want to choose to the compassionate side of jobs, jobs such as uh, elderly caretaker, Uh, go visit and talk to people in foster homes and elderly care and hospitals. Uh, There should be some kind of a stipend paid for that Um, and because that is adding value to the society and shift and helping us through this transition. Because all that I've talked about, whether it is uh, targeted training, taxing the ultra-rich or helping people into volunteer jobs, and paying them for it, those are all transitional moves. I think we have to also think in 50 years or 100 years, uh, does our current work ethic, that is uh, our life value is equated to uh, working hard and making money, uh, that is the, uh, the, va- the value for many people uh, on earth. Uh, that really does need to change because uh, work that is routine will be replaced by AI. And over time, even some non-routine work. So people over a 50 to 100 year time frame can and will work less. And there should be other meaning to life than just working. Uh, But I realize that kind of a shift cannot happen over a group of people who've just lost their jobs. So I think we need to divide our uh, task for humanity into two parts. One is transition to safely get out of the next 30 to 50 years where lots of jobs will be impacted. 
and get people back on their feet and provide the right social welfare and encouragement for retraining volunteerism, and then think also for education in the maybe 40 to 100 year timeframe for us to really rethink why is it that we live on this earth and it's probably not about work and whatever that is, whether it's compassion or something else, uh, we need to shift that human value away because a pure work-driven work ethic uh, and value uh, isn't good be- for, for mankind because machines will be better and better at the quote-unquote work that we're talking about today. So fascinating. Uh, Kai Fu Lee, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And we'd like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially David Noel, Clark Lindgren, Michael Galgool, Stefan Meyer Ewald, Kyle Rahala, Joel, Jonathan Worsley, Yushi Lin, Eric Clark, Jordan Millar, Herring Chan, and Sean Johnson. You can visit our website at inquiring.show and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. You can also find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and on Facebook, and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or anything else you'd like to contact at inquiring.show. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. And we're your hosts. I'm Andre Viscontis, and Kishore Hari and I will both be back next week. See you next week. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.